Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Young Republicans of Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Christensen. Our purpose in making this podcast is to get people involved in the political process with ideas that work for Oregon. Our ultimate goal is to have more freedom and representation than we have had in the past. Our first guest is a fellow Young Republican. He wishes to remain anonymous since he could receive backlash at work because of his conservative values. Thanks for being on the show. And I'll start off with um, my story of leaving the left, and then I'll turn it over to our guest. So I, um, growing up all through high school, was pretty much um, moderate, like undecided. I didn't really have a strong passion either way. toward political issues and it wasn't until my freshman year in college in 2014 where I started getting um, more interested in politics and I took a gender studies class um, spring term and I really believe that the the professors wouldn't they wouldn't like tell me lies so I really believe that what they said about um, feminism, the wage gap, male privilege, all that stuff, I really thought it was true because I didn't think that they would um, just feed me false information. So from that point on, I um, just dove in and became a hardcore feminist until my senior year of um, 2018. And then I had a assignment for um, my one of my media classes, and it was about net neutrality. And I stumbled upon Stephen Crowder um, with Louder with Crowder, and he was so like eloquent with his words and smart, and he just had me hooked. And I started watching his videos, and then Ben Shapiro and John Stossel, and from there I started questioning pretty much everything I've been taught in college, and um, like what they were saying, what Steven Crowder, Ben Shapiro, all those people were saying, it made a lot more sense than the what my leftist professors were saying, like about there being more than two genders, um, that a woman can turn into a man if she wants to, and um, and that white straight men are the enemy, and the reason that people are oppressed is because there's too many old white straight men in Congress, and I just I learned that that wasn't true. Um, it's more important to have intellectual diversity than ethnic diversity, so. That's when I got, um, like, curious about the right. And the Trump election did influence me as well. Um, Everyone was freaking out about it, like, saying that the world is ending, like, this is awful. And my parents are super smart. In my mind, I was like, well, if they don't think it's that bad, maybe Trump is okay. And so from then on, I've been kind of a quiet observer and a Republican, but haven't really um, embraced the title of a conservative until very recently. 
in um, January of this year when I went to a um, Oregon Republican Party event where Candace Owens spoke. And that's when I met the Young Republicans of Oregon and I met Stephen Lloyd. And since then, I've gotten very involved and it just it makes more sense to be on the moderate to right side than on the left and that's so that's how I got here and I'll just turn it over to our guests or guest to um, share his thoughts cool well first of all Lauren thank you for having me thank you for doing this uh, for the listeners out there I'm not a I kind of sort of figure it out as I go so I apologize if I sort of embarrassingly bumble at what I'm about to say hopefully eventually some of it will make sense but uh, I guess my story is like kind of like Warren's, you know, uh, I got into, I started getting into politics around my junior year of college. I believe that was 2014, 2015, maybe that was before the 2016 election. I don't quite remember the years, but I got into it and uh, I was major and I got into it and I was kind of, hmm, you know, I was kind of one of those like lazier college students like when I say I got into politics I did not get into it in the sense that I was looking up a bunch of videos or watching a bunch of you know famous political commentators or looking up a bunch of statistics and all of those things because that is quite involved and I had homework to do you know but more so like it was sort of I was sort of making my decisions off of what sounded logically good because that's pretty easy to do and at the time Bernie Sanders was doing his campaign and his you know his usual principles were universal health care for everybody, free tuition for everybody. Um, uh, we got to promote social justice, diversity, right? You need to be wary of that. All of those things. At the time, that sounded good, right? Like you talk about inequality, you're like, oh, you know, oh man, it's pretty hard for minorities out there. You look at the communities, you know, they're very poor. The schools are not very good. You can't help but think that what what Bernie's saying is like good oh maybe the right way to do this is to give them more money so they can become better and maybe we need to prevent allow more opportunities for minorities to join the workforce you know all of those things and universal healthcare right healthcare is a right everybody should have it that sounds like a great idea uh all of those things and to me that sounded good it, it, it was sort of like it was an easy believing in those ideals was an easy way for me to be a good person and it, it's I mean, everybody wants that for everybody. I mean, if you interview any average person on the street, they're going, you ask them, do you want everybody to have jobs? They will say yes. You ask them, do you want everybody to have health care? They will say yes. Do you, like what I found is people tend to care about people. Uh, so I was a hardcore Bernie supporter. And then during, during the Trump election, uh, when Trump won, I, so my personal take on Trump is I've always liked the guy. He was pretty cool. He was on WWE like in 2003. I was a wrestling fan for a bit. I just didn't think he was presidential. So after Trump won, I was kind of worried like everyone else, like, oh man, is this guy going to like, is he going to start a war? Is he going to like mess up the economy? Is he going to create more divide in the country, etc.? So I started looking into like, why did he win? And one of, and I found out, and when I looked into that, I sort of stumbled upon like Lauren, you know, Ben Shapiro, Stephen Crowder, all the conservative commentators. And I started to understand that the philosophy, I started to be introduced to the philosophy of the right. And the key idea being that everything should be centered around the individual. So, for example, when I found that, I was like, you know, you look at universal health care, right? Everybody should get health care, right? Uh, I found that the right actually supports people having access to health care. But the reason that they don't like universal health care is because if you give health care to everybody and, and people are paying for other people's insurance, 
that encourages bad habits that encourages bad habits in certain people to continue right so for example if i'm paying for somebody else's if i'm paying for somebody's insurance who doesn't take good care of themselves who doesn't eat well who doesn't care about their own health that's not fair to me and it's not fair to them it is on them to care for themselves well right uh, another example, we go back to the minority communities, social justice agendas, right? I mean, the neighbor, like you look at their poor neighborhoods, the bad schools, right? The right is saying, yes, that sucks, but there's other examples of poor minorities coming from poorer communities, like Asian American families or even some of the Indian families, and their kids are doing well. Why is that? They go to, they don't go to the best, you know, they don't exactly always live in the best environments either. And it turns out it's because of culture, right? What the right saying is, no, the, the, the real issue is not necessarily poverty. Poverty sucks, but it's the fact that their culture doesn't encourage education. Their culture doesn't encourage self-improvement. Their culture doesn't encourage you to, like, succeed in the modern sense of the word. Their culture, like, you look at, for example, the gang culture today in some of the hoods. Their culture is if, you, if you're wearing your jewelry, you know, you're wearing your thug outfits, you know, you're walking around with your bling bling, you're cool. If you're a nerd, you're not cool. If you want to study for an AP physics test, you're not cool. If you don't want to go to the party and smoke weed, you're not cool. So I was like, that makes sense. I mean, if I'm if I'm a kid growing up in an environment where I'm not I'm a nerd and I'm not cool, of course I do not wish to be a, a nerd. I, I'm probably not going to succeed. I want to conform to what my environment is telling me. So I was like, huh, I think what they're saying is true. Uh, a lot of it comes down to the individual. A lot of it comes down to empowering yourself. And I think the right solution is to just encourage other people to make themselves better. And to me, that sounded right. Because, I mean, you're always going to have your extremists. You're always going to have people that are never going to change their minds. But I think a lot of people, if they're given the message of the right path is to become a better person, that resonates with them. The problem is that not a lot of people are out there to give that message, if that makes sense. So that just appealed to me. And that's kind of why I started changing my mind about the left and leaning more towards the right. It's mostly that individuals are important, you know, empowering the individual is a good thing freedom for example is a good thing like controlling people is right all of those and like the right there's this stigma that um we're toxic and racist and xenophobic and all that but it's not true mm. and so i'm hoping with this podcast we'll break those boxes Next, I talked to Tom Harrison. He is the only Republican candidate for the U.S. House Representatives, Oregon District 3. Earl Blumenauer has the seat now and is running for re-election this year. Harrison also walked away from the left. Could you tell us about that? Well, it was certainly before there was a hashtag. Um, it was 1973. I had voted liberal once, the only time I'd voted liberal in my life, uh, after becoming 18 and I voted in that presidential election well in the summer of 1973 I was pitching the Johnson's war on poverty and I was doing so in front of uh, two uncles of mine on my mother's side who were at a family barbecue my mother's house um, and it was a beautiful day out I can remember exactly what I was wearing I can remember exactly I remember exactly where I was uh, it, where my uncles were standing because this was a this was a, a definitely a, a a revelatory moment. I was pitching the war on poverty and saying the reason it wasn't working was those businesses weren't paying their fair share. My uncle Harold, one of the kindest things he ever did to me, 
and he was a good guy, but this was the kindest thing he ever did. He called me an idiot. He said, Tom, you're an idiot. And I said, what do you mean call me an idiot? Now, mind you, I'm in an Ivy League school. I'm accepted early decision. I think I'm all that in a bag of chips. And he's calling me an idiot. Well, having just finished my sophomore year, that's an appropriate time to get called an idiot. In any event, I said, what do you mean calling me that? And he said, well, I've owned a company in Portland for 25 years, and I've never paid any taxes. I said, you should be in jail. He said, no, no, idiot, pay attention. I've never paid any taxes because my customers pay my taxes. Well, I rolled back on my heels. I was absolutely speechless. My mouth fell open. I absolutely, literally drooled on my shirt. And I realized as I stood there agape that he was correct that businesses can't pay a tax that they haven't collected from a customer in the form of revenue. Well, that, that made me change right there on the spot. I have repeated that same, except for the idiot part, uh, on, on a couple of other people and had that, and had exactly the same response. Some people complain about it, but I've had a couple that did exactly the same thing I did, fell back and uh, just couldn't understand how they could have believed it any differently. Well, that was my walk-away moment. So at that point, I was a conservative, and I began studying now uh, to, uh, to dig through the propaganda I'd already absorbed at a very liberal college. Dartmouth still is, and the Ivy League basically all is. Um, and I, it made me dig, and made me also not trust people, uh, but to dig. So it's... One of the biggest problems in politics these days is this thing called confirmation bias, where you get a you get a mindset, and then everything is judged by the mindset rather than going in and finding data. So that's what I'd done. I took the mindset. I took the the belief that oh, you were doing these good things, uh, so it must be right, and real I came to realize that was not the case. So that was my walk away moment, yeah. and it was it was a great blessing to have my uncle call me an idiot. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. I, I swore to myself at that point I would never trust another politician until I heard it come out of their mouths that businesses don't pay taxes. Now, I know others have said it, but the first one I heard say it after that point was Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And he said that, and I said, okay, you, you've got my trust because you understand that fundamental basic fact. Now, over the course of that time, from 73 until now, I spent an awful lot of time looking at the, the nature of economic transactions and the nature of taxation. Um, and it led me down a road where first I understood that businesses don't pay any taxes. But then that, that also works for everyone involved in commerce, in one way or another, they will try to shift the burden of a tax elsewhere if they can. They will adjust. There was an article in... Uh, Forbes years ago, I, th I think it was Forbes, yes, and it was, uh, it was written by Thomas Sowell, and uh, the title of it was, if I've got this remembered correctly, it's been a long time, but uh, it was, they treat us like blocks of wood. The legislators in general tend to think they can make something happen, make a law, and that no one will change their behavior as a result. So they treat you like a block of wood. They can just position people on the chessboard, and th they'll stay there. Well, of course they don't. So everyone adjusts to a tax that's levied on them. 
it's uh, not possible then to levy a tax anywhere on the system where it does not transfer out to everyone else. So if you, if you tax a fellow uh, who has plenty of disposable income, he won't save as much, he won't spend as much, he will change his behavior. And that transfers the tax to other people. So it's not just businesses that don't pay taxes, it's anybody who can adjust will start moving the burden of that tax to other people because they won't do business like they did before. And that works all the way down to, to consumers, of course. If you tax the middle class, they won't buy as many new cars. And that's a simple way of looking at it, but it's really a fact. They just don't invest, they just don't operate the same. Well, that led me farther down the road, and when I got to the end of it, I realized that not even the poor can avoid being hit by a tax that's levied elsewhere. They don't even know they're being hit, but their prices go up, their opportunities go down, the things that they uh, would like to do become less available, and they don't even know why. Well, it's because the tax you levied on some corporation upstream someplace changed the price of the food they buy, changed the price of the apartment they rent, uh, changed the price, price of the tent they buy if you're living on the street. So all the things that happen are affected by taxes levied on somebody else. So that boiled it down to a bumper sticker. All taxes tax the poor. It's not who writes the check, it's who pays the price. And of course everyone pays the price, but the poor have nothing with which to afford it. So they get clobbered the worst, even though they may only have pennies of the tax levied on them. Nevertheless, it affects them, and it affects them brutally. Which is why, after all these years of the war on poverty, we have still more poor people than we did when we started because every tax levied to make that system work is hitting the poor. Mm -hmm. So it makes more poor people. It's yeah. a terrible thing. Yeah. So it, it just transfers into a lot of other areas, too. The climate debate works the same way. That's going to be taxes, right? Who's that going to hit the hardest? The poor. So if we want to clobber people, it's real easy. Levy a new tax. So my goal is to get that on the floor of Congress. That needs to be spoken. It's been spoken in Salem at least once that I know of. And it was the legislator I talked to. So it got it got spoken once, and I, I know it's affected some people. It needs to affect more. Yeah. So, so is that's that the way. Is that why you're running for this position? Yes, it started in the last cycle. I ran because I opened my ballot on the 3rd of, 3rd of May, I think. Yeah. And noticed nobody was running as the Republican for that seat. I said, well, this is nuts. I've had enough of this. And it's happened before, but this is the first time I actually paid attention and looked at it and go, wait, why am I not doing something about this? So I started on the 3rd of May a write-in campaign to get the nomination. Got the nomination by seven votes. And number two was Earl Blumenauer. That's what happens a lot. I've studied that too, and it happens a lot. People cross over. Now, Earl didn't do that himself, but he gets people who will vote for him by registering Democrat, registering as Republican, voting for him, and then registering back. This happens on both sides, and it happens all the time. But it was kind of funny to reach, see the votes tallied. Initially, he was ahead, and then they did the name recognition stuff where they go through and, and justify spellings and so on, and he gained a few votes, and I gained more than he did. So. 
I ended up winning. The, so the nomination came to me, and the second on the list was Earl Blumenauer. That would have been a nasty thing to open my ballot and decide you can never vote for Earl Blumenauer or Earl Blumenauer. Silly stuff. So that was the first reason. It was just so it, we didn't have anything void, because I had no political ambition. Washington is a dirty, nasty place. Salem is a dirty, nasty place. And I, I don't like the idea of being there, but now I've got to get this spoken. I mean, I, I, when I did an interview with Willamette Week during that cycle, and I mentioned all taxes tax the poor, they basically erupted. Now, it wasn't reported. It's in their tape, though. The, uh, the editor said, what do you mean, you don't like taxes? And I said, no, no, stop. I didn't say that. I said, all taxes tax the poor. It's supposed to make you think before you tax because you're going to hurt somebody by doing it. So you need to keep government small. So that's a natural outcome of that. Uh, for me, is the is going to minimal government is a function of recognizing that taxes hurt the poor the worst. So uh, now it's become more of a, uh, well, it's still the reason. I mean, the first time it was just because I couldn't stand to see the, 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 uh, the ballot void for a Republican. But now I, I'm convinced I want to, uh, it's really time for him to leave. I mean, he's great on bicycles, lousy on business. So, time for him to go. Do you stand a chance? <laughs> well, a good friend of mine is a guy named Greg Clapper. He's a, he's a sort of a political junkie, I guess. He used to run radio stations here in town. Now he, uh, now he does uh, consulting in the and, and polling, essentially in politics. And he also operates a group called Executive Club, which is uh, something that begun by Don McIntyre years ago. Uh, and I, I called him up on the phone. I, says, I announced this at Executive Club the following night. And uh, <laughs> I said, now, Greg, I just want you to know I, I got the nomination, but I don't have any false presumptions here. I know it would take a miracle to get elected in the district, in District 3. District 3 is heavily Democrat. Um, I think Earl got, oh, I don't know what his total was, but I got 20%, that was 76,000, and he wasn't at all worried. <laughs> so will it take a miracle? Yeah, but miracles come in a lot of different forms. Every once in a while somebody screws up really badly. I think this Green New Deal he has now signed, him, signed on to, I think he's rejoined the Progressive Caucus, which to me is an oxymoron because progress will be going toward liberty, not away from it. Um, but he signed on to the Green New Deal, and he's uh, he signed on to all of the climate stuff. So that's all tax. And uh, that may cause him to slip up. We'll see if that does that. So that's one way. Another way is there can be some event that occurs that wakes up a lot of people, and they walk away. I know that uh, there's a good part of Portland that desperately would like to be part of the economic resurgence in the United States and aren't. So there can be an event that occurs that wakes some wakes a large enough bunch of people up and they decide they're going to have it a different way. Will it take a miracle? Yes. Is it impossible? No. And I'll give it my best shot. Yeah. Well... Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so, um, 
last in the first time you ran um you focused on immigration was your big Mm -hmm. policy but now that the wall is being built is that not a like is that not your number one priority it isn't in in the campaigning for the for the seat it isn't number one in terms of crossing the border although it is still an essential item if you don't have a border you don't have a country just as if you don't have a front door you don't have a house you have a open place to invite people into or not invite them well so during the first pass that was my primary focus is look we as a country as the owners of the country as the citizens who are here because we have decided to be together then uh, we get it all get a chance to vote on who we allow in so that's our immigration policy in law so we do those things we can lock our doors at night so we should also be able to lock the door to the country as Trump has demonstrated now and won in court now finally that they yes you can stop people from coming into the country so that part is mostly that's being addressed but it's not finished now we can go to the rest of the, the problem which is this idea of sanctuary and uh, the federal government is biting back on that that's good it's about time the I the first comment I had when I the first sanctuary uh, city was declared I said that that's nuts that's ignoring the supremacy clause the understanding that well, one of the first Supreme Court decisions was the fact that federal law is superior to state law and there are areas where you can't you just can't do that so ignoring the needs of law enforcement federally doesn't make any sense and of course there are oodles of examples of things where that goes terribly bad uh, one of the campaigns that uh, that Greg worked on was the campaign uh, regarding driver's licenses for illegals measure 88 and the no on 88 is one it it polled at about 67 percent and sure enough it was that's the vote which meant Democrats and Republicans voted for it or voted against it rather the no was the was the, the good the good vote so and there were plenty of examples they, they put up a door hanger that was little candles, in other words, memorial candles, associated in a story of someone who died at the hands of someone who was here illegally and had already been adjudged for depart- deportation. In one case, there was a fellow who was deported like, he was deported like uh, eight times, I think, something, yeah, something more than that, and it came back and, and, uh, and finally ended up killing somebody. Well, okay, time to close the door. On, on people like that so we should be able to make the right judgment but you shouldn't take immigration law down to the state level it is a national issue uh, that'd be like uh, well and this is true in the EU too they have the same problem if any country lets somebody cross the border they can go anywhere they want and that's true here too, of course too we, we have no border between states so if one state is acting in a presumptuous manner and saying you cross the border here you're safe well then they can go anywhere else they want in the country especially if they get a driver's license and uh, and, be, and consider themselves safe that's a bad thing you don't want the first thing you teach an immigrant 
is that disobeying the law is the way you win. That's the wrong lesson. And it makes them stay separate from our culture, not join it. That's a bad thing. So let's have a good, robust debate over the number of people we let in and uh, what qualifications they need to be let in. They need to speak English. Do they need to have uh, certain skills? What, how do we let them in? That's something we do by law. And we can have a great debate about that. That's good. That's the right way to do this. The wrong way is to have a state or a city say, oh, you come here, you're safe. We won't, e even if we think you might have committed a crime, unless they actually have a warrant for a certain crime, we're not going to tell the feds about you. That's a bad idea. So that's where that still stands. The economy was a big issue then, but we're just starting to get the uh, uh, the results of the tax uh, the tax break. And that tax break uh, didn't help me personally, but it helped most of the country. And that's uh, so I'm all for it. In general, I say if anybody gets a tax break, I'm happier. Because if a tax break happens one place, that also distributes outward. It changes behavior again. So taxes change behavior negatively. Tax breaks change behavior positively. So we end up with tax breaks on companies, and what they start doing is start hiring. And it triggered something for me that was, was reminiscent of my childhood. There was a fellow in Portland for a long time. His name was Harold Hirsch. He owned a company called White Stag. They made ski wear and sportswear in general. My dad worked for him for a long time. Harold Hirsch was Dartmouth class of 33, I think. And he's the reason I went to Dartmouth instead of Yale, which is where my dad went. He did not graduate there, but he went there. So I had an easy end to Yale, but uh, Harold convinced me otherwise. Well, Harold came back, wet behind the ears, you know, from Dartmouth, and went to his dad, Max Hirsch, because the company at that time was called Hirschweiss Canvas Products, and they, they were on the sea wall or the river wall down in Portland on, Bur on uh, uh, Burnside. Where oh, that big tall Portland sign is now, that used to say White Stag. Well, uh, before that, before that big sign was there, it was Hirschweiss Canvas Products. They sold sails for sailing ships, and that's what they did. So Hirschweiss in English is White Stag. So Harold came home and said, Dad, I think there's a market for ski wear, because Dartmouth was a big ski school. His dad said, I think you're crazy. I guess that happens a lot to people the right way. Well, he said, but I'll give you $3,000 and three seamstresses, and when you're, when you're run out of money, you're out of business. Well, obviously, you never ran out. So that industry just went nuts, crazy, and uh, White Stag was at the top of the heap for a long time. Well, Harold wanted to fix poverty in Portland. This is the right way to do it. Because what he did was he pledged, I mean, it was his company, he could pledge what he wanted to do. So what he figured he could do was he could move the factory out to a spot that put him in line with the old Rose City Transit bus line that went all the way from North Portland all the way down to basically Johnson Creek Boulevard. And he positioned the factory right at the tail end of the, or the, the, the south end of that line. And when he needed new people for the factory floor, he put up signs and they, they put up signs in North Portland. That's where he solicited because that's where the people who were unemployed were. And he, he the signs were essentially I need, you know, seamstresses, cutters, whatever the jobs were, 
No experience necessary will train apply in person. So you had this continuous flow of people coming and getting trained into a, in something that was a skill. And so I walked out there. Now, this, is, this was happening even when I was a little kid. I didn't know what was going on until I was much older. But as a little kid, like six, seven years old, I walk on the factory floor, it's a sea of black faces. That was impressive. I mean, it didn't, was not an issue for me. It was completely normal because that's the only thing I ever remembered. And, but Her that was Harold's way of saying, I'm going to try to fix this. Now, was he totally successful? No, but for those people he was. That was impressive. Now, as I got older, and in particular after my dad died, Harold sort of mentored me for a while, uh, up and through the first couple of years of my marriage when I came back to Portland after I graduated. And we had conversations about this stuff. He would occasionally have uh, cocktail parties where he had government people coming over. So he was engaged. And, you know, he told me the story. That's, that's how I know the rest of the story. Uh, it made a, made a dent in Portland. Um, do we still have a problem? Yes. We still have a lot of poverty in Portland. Most of it's in District 1. Or District 3, excuse me. So in that district, why isn't there more business? I would think because we haven't yet figured out that loosening the reins a bit and giving business more head to do things to move forward, for example, tax breaks for new employment, uh, for example, reducing employer side taxes, uh, reducing the employee side taxes to allow them to gain skills. Because you have to reduce that uh, that paycheck load, or people, nobody can afford to train anymore. It's tough. Uh, so doing things like that to incentivize business is an important thing if you're trying to solve underemployed or unemployed issues. So why um, why did you decide to go all the way to run for? Um, a seat all the way in D.C., why not start in local or state? Because... Remember, the first reason I ran was because the ballot was void. But as I learned what was the issues and started paying more attention, I realized that we're still, we're still heading the wrong direction with regard to tax load in Washington. Uh, that book I mentioned, The Law, there's a section in there that talks about, well, it's a, a large part of it, uh, is the idea of plunder and voting as a protection against plunder. If, if all government can do is protect rights, which if you read the Declaration, that's what it says governments are made to do, is protect rights. If you, if you accept that, as a fundamental axiom of, of, uh, of government, then nobody cares who votes in, that, in a government like that because what's the worst that can happen? You don't protect something that maybe needs protecting, but nobody's going to get eaten alive because of it. So when you start using the treasury as a, uh, as a place to go plunder, essentially, 
then people start voting to get government to give them something. They also vote to keep government from taking what they've got. So there's an attempt to avoid being plundered, as well as to plunder in revenge, not really consciously, but to realize that I'm trying to get something out of government so I, you know, to mix up for this, the one I'm being taken away from. Well, okay. Who can't vote? Who's getting plundered these days? Well, that's easy. Your kids and grandkids that aren't born yet. But they're the ones who get the debt. So why federal instead of local? Because that debt is our biggest plundering of the future. And House Representatives is where that's done. So we have a massive debt. President Trump, I think, is backed into a corner with the House of Representatives the way it is. But, nevertheless, the spending has to be reined in. I've heard rumor that uh, his second term will be all about pushing back against that deficit. So, I'd like to stand there and give him an extra nudge in that direction, for sure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Republicans of Oregon podcast. Please like and follow our Facebook page.